Monaco and Culture is brought to you in association with the all-electric 2024 Cadillac Lyric. Magnificence electrified. The Cadillac Lyric delivers a sporty, responsive and agile drive that makes every mile a milestone. This groundbreaking Ultium EV battery platform fundamentally changes how electric vehicles are engineered, delivering charging and power storage technologies that fit seamlessly into far-reaching journeys and daily commutes. The Lyric is a vehicle that balances the sensual and the technical in masterful harmony, where rhythm, form and colour unite. From emergency braking to intelligent alerts, parking assistance to vehicle monitoring, the Cadillac Smart System suite of safety and driver assistant features, standard on the Lyric, means you'll drive with added confidence. While innovations like available supercruise driver assistance technology and Google built-in set a new standard for technical prowess. Take the next step. Head to Cadillac.com now to configure your car. The all-electric 2024 Cadillac Lyric. Magnificence Electrified. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. Regularly throughout this year, we've been blessed with thoughtful recommendations from many of our favourite writers, critics and thinkers from the world of culture. On today's episode, we're tapping into that combined wisdom once again to bring you a roundup of the best of what 2023 had to offer. We're covering books, film and music from a novel that follows a history teacher on a road trip with the great lost love of his life to animated superheroes and the surprise album from a triple Grammy nominated band. And here with those recommendations and many more besides are the arts journalist Andrew Mayle, the Guardian's deputy music editor Laura Snapes and the film critic Leila Latif. Welcome all to the programme. Lovely to have you here. Thank you. In pre-Christmas roundup mode. Um, Andrew, we're going to start with you. Welcome back to the programme. Thank you very much. Lovely to be back. We're in kind of quick fire round today. But nonetheless, we're going to lean on some of your wisdom. We're talking about books with Andrew um, today. And your first choice is a much fancy one this year. It was recommended by Mutual friend of ours, I think, John Mitchinson, earlier in the year, and that is Claire Dederer's Monsters. What what floated your boat about this this year, Andrew? Just the way Dederer is, she's an American critic and essayist, and uh, she's intelligent and witty. And Monsters is this brilliant mix of memoir and treatise, I suppose, in which she asks, what do you do with the art of monstrous people? Phil Spector... Michael Jackson, Roman Polanski, Virginia Woolf, Woody Allen, J.K. Rowling. Can you hate the artists but still love the art? And the thing that's nice about it is it's a very playful, self-reflexive series of essays. And at the heart of it is Dedera's own relationship with these complicated and mostly male artists whose, to quote her, is whose behaviour disrupts our ability to apprehend their work. She, I mean, she also, she analyzes the notion of the monstrous female artist, the negligent mother and cliches like that. And she asks whether, you know, artists, awful people are driven to greatness, to artistic greatness to make up for their loathsomeness. But ultimately, this is a book that kind of resists any grand unified intellectual theory. And it allows the reader, the consumer, you and me, 
to just kind of have space to revel in the beauty and grandeur and strangeness of great art made by bad people on the understanding ultimately that liking it doesn't make you a bad person <laughs> and perhaps more importantly casting it aside doesn't automatically make you a good person mm -hmm. so it kind of allows you to engage with these complicated areas between the you know the creator and the object the work of art that they create i guess she's vacillating in between separating the art from the artists does she treat everybody equally in this kind of list of it's people have criticized the book that i read reviews of the book at the time saying where are the answers there are no answers then you know as if like people wanted a kind of a template mm. that you placed on every book and every film so you could kind of go along and go tick good tick bad and it's like okay right. great fine now i can watch annie which dvds yeah, to take off the shelf exactly yeah. and she doesn't do that because she realizes that what you're doing is you're immersed in these works you're engaged with it it's an ongoing process and i think to present definite answers would be disingenuous and also she's smart enough to admit that it's dependent on the quality of the art so basically saying it's easier to dismiss the cosby show than it is to dismiss the works of Picasso. You know, it's not just based on the degree of awfulness that is inherent in the creator. It's also a cultural question of how much you value the art that they created. That is Monsters by Claire Dedder. Andrew, thank you very much. Laura, we're going to kick off music with you. We're going to have a clip. This is Eddie Chacon from Eddie Chacon's new uh, record. This is a bit of Holy Hell. <laughs> Some uh, collaborative nodding here in Studio One. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't hear the beginning of that song, but it has the greatest drum intro I've heard yeah. in forever. I could listen to just that bit on a loop. <laughs> That's definitely the peppiest song on the album. Mm -hmm. Eddie Shkorn, people might not know the name, but you would probably know Charles and Eddie's Would I Lie to You, the big 90s hit. They had quite a bit of success then, but then in the early 2000s, Charles died and Eddie pursued a career in photography. He said that he didn't want to be a sort of washed-up heritage act and the idea of something doing something like Eddie Shkorn plays Motown absolutely appalled him. <laughs> but then he kind of had the idea that he wanted to get back into music and somebody put him in touch with John Carroll Kirby, who's this like brilliant LA producer who's worked with people like Solange and the Brain Feeder crew. And he had his comeback solo album, I think in 2019. Andrew will know better because I discovered him because of Andrew's um, interview with him for The Guardian <laughs> called Pleasure, Joy and Happiness. Different sort of nodding along to that. <laughs> yeah, vigorous. <laughs> I would say that album is even a bit more sort of like colourful and present than this one. This one is so spectral. I mean, mm. that song is absolutely fantastic, but it's a bit of a misnomer for the rest of the record. It's like ghostly soul music with barely there wisps of lyrics about mortality it reminds me of the sort of music that you would listen to if you were lucky enough to own a frank lloyd wright bungalow but you were actually very sad in spite of being able to own a frank lloyd wright bungalow drinking a cocktail and sort of shuffling maybe you'd very... inherited it from <laughs> maybe someone you'd inherited that you wished it. was still there and you can't yeah. afford the upkeep and you wish they were still there uh, but you're you're drinking a cocktail and shuffling very slowly on the carpet it's very soulful and like sensual in a really unobvious way he's an amazing performer as well Obviously, Eddie Chacon brings out 
the best in reviewers. Thank you for that <laughs> that pithy sentiment, Laura Snopes. I would I would like to uh, refer listeners back to Andrew's review. I think this was of, of his earlier album when he described it as crap's last tape via Channel Orange. <laughs> yeah. um, so it, <laughs> it brings out the excellent metaphor in all music writers as well. So he literally hung up his microphone and his song and put his lawyer's pad for his songwriting purposes back in a cupboard and became a creative director. I understand between yeah, and Charles and Eddie and, and photographer. Yeah, so the, it's almost you know twenty years in the wilderness, really. Yeah. And we had John Carroll Kirby on this program earlier this year. He's a very good chat, but I love his I love his work. It's sort of wonky soul funk sort of stuff. It's all all slightly different stuff. And his voice, Eddie Chacon's voice, is this? Are we in sort of classic soul territory? I wonder with this, or is are we in sort of wispier? Are we more suggestive, gauzier sort of territory with his vocals? Yeah, definitely wispier, ghostier. I mean, he's not that old, but there's a real like you know veil of mortality that hangs over these records. And I, you know, I kind of maybe it's because of the loss of Charles. I'm not sure where entirely it comes from. But mm. the first time I saw him live at Le Guess Who Festival a few years ago, he was quite a sort of spectral uncertain seeming figure but then I saw him at the Church of Sound in London around this time last year actually and he was much more into it and he had a bit more sh- like razzle dazzle going on you can <laughs> okay. see he was wearing a vest with a lovely see-through grey starry top on top so oh. he was getting into it he'd got his glittery curtains <laughs> yeah. at least nominally behind him <laughs> yeah. that is the album Sundown by the returning Eddie Chacon thank you very much for that Laura film time Layla hi Layla hey and we are we're starting with Saint-Omer this is a fascinating sort of premise for a film. What did this do in the summer? It is a fascinating premise. The story behind it is absolutely unbelievable one. Essentially, Alice Diop, the writer and director of this film, was a documentarian. She's made incredible documentaries for years. And she was kind of struck by the story that she saw in the newspaper one day about this Senegalese immigrant who had been accused of leaving her little baby on the beach and allowing the tide to come in and drown her. And she kind of became convinced that, like, you know, all these racist press, they can't be reporting this right. Mm. This must be some sort of, you know, misunderstanding and some terrible injustice about to happen. So she went and she sat through the trial it's a lot more complicated than she uh, um, could imagine. So at the end of it, she decided to make her first um, fiction feature, I suppose a loosely fictionalised mm. version of events. And so, yeah, Saint-Omer, where uh, terrible things happen yeah. to very complicated women. It's an amazing thing. And I understand that it has something to do with, this was not the intention of the mother, or is this the intention of the filmmaker, that this kind of riffs on the myth of Medea? Yeah, very much riffing on uh, the myth of Medea, but I think the kind of reading that the ops proxy Rama comes to the trial with mm. is that she's about to see kind of how, you know, this woman is like a victim of a, of a Jason, like Medea was a victim of yeah. someone else. Yeah. But the reality is a lot more brutal and it's all about kind of feeling dispossessed and lonely and mental illness and the way that, you know, black women in France are kind of isolated, not just from their community, but kind of from their own like sense of self, I suppose. Yeah, so the filmmaker was a documentary maker before mm-hmm. she was a feature filmmaker and making a film about something that really happened and going to a courtroom and all the rest of it. How much does it lean on its on her own documentary roots, stylistically? You know, not very. I mean, there's a lot of kind of very well-written monologues that are delivered. Mm-hmm. It kind of all crescendos on There is this... a Greek chorus then of sorts. <laughs> <laughs> there is, like, yeah. You know, I mean, I don't think you'd guess that, like, those were the roots of it. I didn't even really 
understand that it had any kind of basis in reality whatsoever. I was watching it. It was kind of a stunning twist that happened in the press notes afterwards. But yeah, no, she she sort of reimagines things. So you have like the the barrister for the defense giving like a speech that just, you know, feels like it could have been written by Shakespeare. And like the whole mm. purpose of it is not to be like this is what happened, but kind of what she wished had happened. Right. Been a good, it's been a good year for French courtroom dramas, right? Anatomy of a Fool. It has, yeah. It's been good. Those yeah. guys, yeah. Yeah, a lot of... Uh... Breaking the breaking the conventions. <laughs> uh, of the... To be a woman in the French justice system, it's not enviable. What lots, <laughs> yeah. No, and also this, we should point out this one, the grand jury prize at Venice. It's Leila's choice. It's Saint-Omer. Thanks very much, Leila. Andrew, coming back to you and books, Sebastian Barry... Always Wonderful, was on form again this year with Old God's Time. Tell us a little bit about this one. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Sebastian Barry, Dublin-born novelist, playwright, poet, multi-garlanded, twice shortlisted for the Booker, twice winner of the Costa, and his books are regularly recommended to me. And this, But this is the first one I've actually finished, as I often find his books very rich, very overflowery, kind of very much about kind of Oh, what a beautifully constructed sentence, Sebastian. But and <laughs> at first glance, this is quite a straightforward book about a retired police officer, DS Tom Kettle, living alone on the Dublin coast in a crumbling lean-to next to a Victorian castle, surviving on the memories of his late wife and his, his two children also dead. And then he's called back to the force to help in a cold case investigation of a murdered priest. So it begins like... A classic crime Bit of novel. genre, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the old detective called back for one last job. But the difference is that Tom is an unreliable subject. He's prone to evasions, forgetfulness and disinformation. Some of the characters he meets and that we meet may be memories or ghosts. And gradually some of his darkest memories and those of Ireland itself begin to rise to the surface. So there's a, you'll notice when I talk about the Laurie Moore book, there's a theme that is developing here. This kind of the old God's time is a it's a hazy, dreamlike, unstable book. And it's kind of while it's moving forward, it's also unraveling. And so it's reworking and picking apart, you know, kind of crime genre tropes, but also kind of it's a book about Ireland, about memory and loss and trauma, where the prose, it's almost like the prose is being used as a means to keep people's memories alive. He's sort of geographically, he's sort of on the edge of things, isn't he? He, yes. he buys he's or on, rents he's a on cottage the... on the edge of the sea and yeah. he kind of ruminates and it's got a kind of, there's a bit of an Iris Murdoch kind of vibe there. In certain yeah, ways. and, there's, and there's, a, there's a sense of kind of entropy and lassitude mm. to it as well, this idea of things falling away and trying to sort of retain and hold on mm. to things that are falling away. And it's kind of one of those books that's sort of, it's so rich and it works on so many levels. Yeah, I feel like you can't see the joins in his no, work. Actually. Absolutely I love, not. I love that. It's just like it's always it's, he's sort of capturing it from the ether kind of thing. Yes. That is Sebastian Barrow's Old God's Time. Thank you, Andrew. Laura, we're coming to you. We're in the very much in the world of memory and evocation of memory. And this is Julie Byrne. Should we have a clip from Summer Glass before we chat about Julie Byrne's RP? <laughs>
vocals of Julie Byrne. Laura, this comes from a very tender place of memory as well, I suppose, this record. Yeah, it's really interesting. So this is Julie Byrne's third album. The first one was sort of a cassette release that then got sort of discovered more widely. And then Not Even Happiness a few years ago was the first time she kind of really, you know, peeked into the public eye. And then this new album, it was quite a long time in the making because um, she'd always made music with her collaborator, Eric Littman, who's a musician in his own right. And they had started making this record together and they were long-term friends, sort of more than best friends is how I think they would describe it. Like they had been romantic partners early on, but then they just had this really kind of transcendent friendship that he died in the middle of its making. So then the record was shelved for ages. And, you know, I interviewed her and she described the kind of horrifyingly intimate process of having to go into his computer and find the files that they had been working on. They were the only people who had ever heard them. And then she ultimately finished a record with a guy called Alex Summers, who was in a, a duo with John Z from Sigur Ross. Mm-hmm. I think there were nine songs on the album and eight of them were written before Eric's passing and then one called Death is the Diamond, the last song was written afterwards. But I find this happens quite often in, maybe it's just coincidence, but where, not that she in any way was sort of foretelling his death or anything like that, but the original songs that she wrote, he had things that he had told her about the meaning of true friendship. Like there's a really great song called Conversation is a Flow State, which she told me was something that he said to her, just this a perfect aphorism that he came out with when she described feeling misused in a relationship. Yeah, the sound of it is unbelievable. It's so transcendent. It seems to be cast kind of in halo light. Like that clip that we just heard, I think is amazing. There's so many bits I love in it. Her voice is sort of like Nico, but with a real tenderness to it, maybe. Mm. Like there's a caress in there. And then one of the lyrics in the bit that we heard, she sings, you lit my joint with the end of your cigarette. Just like these little intimacies (laughs) that she sings about. And the way that the synths and the harp cascade together in that song, it reminds me of sort of a moment in a Disney cartoon where you see a regular mortal kind of being elevated into the heavens with stars swirling around them or something in this moment (laughs) of transformation. And it is a record that's tinged with grief, but also in the way... In a way that's about grief sort of teaching you why love is worth it and mm. sort of, yeah, remembering all the things that it's taught her. It's not it's not a melancholy record. I mean, I do find parts of it very sad and very beautiful, but, yeah, it's really transcendent, I think. It seems to do a lot with not a lot, in a way. It doesn't have a huge amount of, of instrumentation to push you emotionally one way or another. It's just in her vocals and in that very light instrumentation that seems to seems to work hard, and her lyrics are such a part of that, I suppose, and that voice, as you say. Yeah. Sort of close mic, but not cheaply so. You know what I mean? You know, you can yeah. you can sing like that. You can sing that way for effect, and it seems very, very heartfelt. Her, her earliest recordings, like her, her <clears throat> songwriting, was a bit more naturalistic, but then there comes a point kind of around not even happiness where it kind of takes on this metaphysical quality, and I think that really comes through in this record as well. I could not recommend this enough. Beautifully put. It's Julie Burns' The Greater Wings. Thank you, Laura. Layla, we're going to the Spider-Verse. Yeah. Let's hear a bit of the trailer as Miles tries to balance being Spider-Man and being teenager with parents to answer to. My name is Miles Morales. I'm Brooklyn's one and only Spider-Man. And things are going great. Oh, yeah. You were supposed to be her five. All right, whatever. Whatever? Wow. Whatever? So are you like a cow or a Dalmatian? I am the spot. <laughs> it's not funny. Don't, don't do that. Miles's grades are pretty good. A in AP Physics. That's my little man. And a B in Spanish. What? Ooh, okay. Miles. Are you trying to... Mira, that's what I will see. I gotta go. All right, bye. Layla, this received such a lot of love from 
unusual quarters, you might say, this summer. So many people went to see this that don't have kids, that don't necessarily love animated films. Yeah. It seemed to float a lot of boats. Tell us a bit about why this was special this summer. Well, on paper, it's everything that's wrong with the film industry in one film. I mean, it's a sequel. There's multiverses. You hear the reports of, like, the number of thousands of people that were near work to death to create it, to do all the animation. Two writers, three directors. Like, this should be, like, the absolute nadir of culture. But it's so, so good. It's so charming and so much thought has gone into every single frame. I mean, the first one was pretty well received where we kind of had different versions of Spider-Man all coming to Miles' Brooklyn. And in this one, he's going into other versions of the Spider-Man universe. So we kind of see a Mumbai version of Spider-Man. We see a kind of a futuristic one. There's a really beautiful one that um, Gwen Stacy's Spider-Woman populates where everything's done kind of like watercolour pop art and everything reacts based on her emotions around her. And it's just gorgeous (laughs) and beautifully animated. There is a use for the metaverse after all. Yeah, I mean, every other version just so pales in comparison to this and like you see like the sludgy cgi nonsense of like half of them and you just wish that one iota as much of as there's much care went into them as into the spider-verse so this is about the quality of the drawing and the kind of love and care and attention and detail that goes into each frame story-wise things about multiverses can can leave audiences scratching their heads despite winning oscars how does that presumably that shows up perfectly well as well then I think because, I mean, even when you have loads of multiverses, and I think to a certain degree with those things, you just have to accept it and, like, you know, take a leap of faith with it as a concept. There's such a kind of strong core idea here where essentially the film is looking at, like, does trauma have to be part of a superhero origin story? Like, do we actually need to suffer in order to become our best selves and you know I think when you have it kind of grounded in like a really strong concept like I'll accept multiverses and watches and yeah way too many cameos but still delightful <laughs> and what does this because this is a this is a Marvel film it's an animated film does this signal a new direction the quality of this the love for this does this start Marvel I wonder thinking in a different direction in terms of not having you know, six big name actors all kind of duking it out to be the the funniest, have have the best one liners. Does does it feel like an animated universe more and more? I wonder. I hope so, but I think it's more kind of the intelligence of it, which yeah. I hope that the other ones will adopt. I mean, there's been a really significant trend this year that those big superhero films are not getting the box office that they once got. Those Disney Plus shows, like you know, barely making a blip and costing something like I believe it was twenty million an episode for a for She Hulk. Right. They're only half an hour. It's a lot. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think I our day think... rates could all learn. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I think very possibly there's a new direction for this because this critically adored box office was amazing, and I think yeah, there's an idea that people won't just show up for any old thing anymore. Thank you, Layla. That was the wonderful Spider Verse Two. Andrew, we're going to come back to you and the Laurie Moore that you teed up when you were talking about the Sebastian Barry just just vaguely and this is I am homeless if this is not my home we're in haunting territory again yeah I think this is my the other books are great but this is my book of the year um Laurie Moore's probably best known for her ironic aphoristic short stories wisecracking female heroines she's a writer adept at finding darkness in humor and humor in darkness her work is kind of uncanny i think in all senses of that word and this is a deeply uncanny short novel it's about a road trip 
in which a teacher, Finn, leaves the hospice bedside of his dying brother to visit the grave of his ex-girlfriend, Lily, a former laugh therapist, hello, Laurie, (laughs) with your ironies, who has taken her own life. What happens next is kind of unlikely, or maybe I should say unearthly. He finds Lily undead and wandering the graveyard, leaves in her hair some dirt in her mouth, death adjacent, as she explains to him, and she asks to be taken to a body farm in Tennessee where she could be used for forensic research that description may not suggest that this is one of the best comic novels i've ever read um (laughs) the road trip is hallucinatory and disorientating it's described in language that is also hallucinatory and disorientating but also utterly luminous and funny and beautiful it runs parallel with a series of letters from the owner of a 19th century boarding house written to her dead sister about a lodger who might also be the famous assassin of an American president. So you have these two... There's some pa- sort of bardo going on, some yeah. sort of multiverse going well, on. Well, I'd say if, 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 you know, if George Saunders, Saunders yeah. had written this book, he would be, people would be battering down his door to hand him awards, <laughs> you know. Um, but as the road trip continues, the book starts to... Well, like Lily, the book starts to degrade and burst at the seams. and But in this utterly lyrical fashion. And so he's, you know, the, the book describes how she is starting to rot and decay. But also somehow this is described in loving terms and almost like the kind of, you know, the stuff of a love story. There's references to Homer and Orpheus and William Faulkner mm. and conspiracy theories and the death of America. So it's a book. It's a book about death. It's a book about loss. It's also, in a way, like the um, the Sebastian Barry book, it's a book about how we use narrative to hold together the memories of those that we've lost, you know. Yeah. But it's done in such... I mean, I've, I, I know people say all the time, I've never read a book like this. But I genuinely have never read a book like right. this. It's just, it's a magic trick. So it, this is sort of, this is ultimate style... This is a book written in a style that is the is the, is the style almost the plot. The style is doing a the job style, that style normally wouldn't make. No, because it, sometimes when you say that, you, you su- it, it suggests something where style overwhelms everything mm. else. But the style is so full of heart and love and wit because often the style is in the dialogue between, you know, our two characters, between Finn and between Lily as they drive together because they... They used to love each other. They used to be kind of a couple. And so there is a bond there. Beautifully put, Andrew. I am homeless if this is not my home. And it's by Laurie Moore. Thank you very much. Laura, Laugh Track by The National. Is this an ironic title? <laughs> <Might be>. Well, <laughs> uh, while our listeners are ruminating on that, we're going to have a little bit of Smoke Detector. Hang it on a hanger and put it in the closet. You know where it is whenever you need it. It'll make a good argument. You don't know how much I love you to you. You don't know how much I love you. That was a little bit of smoke detector from the laugh track by the national. I've called it the laugh track. I always do this, I always add a the onto everything. Well, I'm only 46. I don't know what's happened. <laughs> anyway, anyway, it's fine. We'll skate over that. 
It was a good year and a busy one for the National. This was their second album of the year. Yeah. It was a surprise album. So, so at the end of 2019 and then into 2020, their frontman Matt Burnley had basically a, a breakdown and he had total writer's block and he didn't know if he if the band were even going to be able to continue. The band is made up of two sets of brothers plus him and there's always been a lot of fractious relationships within the band. But I think for the first time, they really sort of like closed ranks around him and made sure that, you know, prioritised his well-being. It didn't matter if there was a record or not. They just wanted to help like their, their brother because they've been together for such a long mm. time get better. And then out of that period, they made two albums, which I would say real returns to form. Look, I have to put my hands up and say I am a card-carrying national fan. I have seen them 34 times live. Three of them were in September this year. Whoa. Um, uh, but, you know, their, their last album before the pandemic, 2019's I Am Easy to Find, I did not really like that record. I think there's maybe two or three good songs on it. It was mm-hmm. too cluttered with guest vocalists and too fussy in the arrangements. But these feel not quite like back to basics, but you can hear a lot of what people originally loved about the national in them sort of the desperate self-scrutiny of a record like alligator or sort of like the modern elegies of something like boxer and the first one uh the first album that came out this year was in spring it's called first two pages of frankenstein great and that's great name for an album really good yeah, yeah he's matt burning has said he related to kind of the, the monster in mm. that record and that's a more gentle album they made them all at the same time with the exception of smoke detector which is a song that came together on stage in a sound check although the songs were written at the same time you can slightly divide them into two camps like the ones that are on the album that came out earlier this year are more gentle that's a more fragile record and it's shorter matt said that he didn't want to immerse people in that sad desperate headspace for too long but then the songs that are on laugh track they are more wide-ranging they're more adventurous they're some of them are rockier i mean the title track laugh track is one of the most beautiful gentle songs they've ever made it's an, it's their third collaboration i think with phoebe bridges and the concept is like a couple whose life is in ruins but he sings like let's put on the laugh track let's see if it changes the scene this idea of like what if this was a sitcom would, yeah. would it feel different but they go to so many different places on this record and it's got this feeling of like you know the, brian devendorf he's one of the best drummers in indie rock but he's played like electric drum machine for their past few records and here he's back on a proper kit really really driving it and the record's got this like mutinous driving feel but also lightheaded in parts as well it's sort of like you're being swept out to sea on some kind of terrible tide and you don't care you're just going with it but yeah that song smoke detector it's eight minutes long we heard a tiny fraction of it i yeah there have been days this year where i've listened to it for several hours on a loop which probably says as much about the quality of the song as it does about my headspace laura thank you uh, for talking us through the nationals laugh track uh, this year layla coming up next uh, it's your last movie choice and it is the movie elephants in the room one half of it anyway um it is oppenheimer and let's start with a clip why would we go to the middle of nowhere for who knows how long why why how about because this is the most important thing that ever happened in the history of the world you're the great improviser but this you can't do in your head Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want from theory alone? Zero would be nice. A little bit of Oppenheimer to take us into the ineluctable log flume of the awards season. Um, That was right at the beginning of the season, I suppose. A smash hit film about a nuclear physicist. How is it allowed to happen? Well, I mean, it happens because Christopher Nolan is extremely good at his job and always comes in under budget. So I think they give him a lot more of a free reign than than most people get. But yeah, it's his. He left Warner Brothers and now made this with Universal, which. Mm. 
I've got some conspiracy theories as to why Warner Brothers then put Barbie on the, the same weekend. But it, <laughs> but yeah, it worked out well for both of them because they just did um, incredibly at the box office. But I think the real kind of going into awards season, the one that's going to sweep it is Oppenheimer because it is utterly spellbinding, brilliant. I'm so glad that it's now uh, topped uh, Bohemian Rhapsody as the biggest biopic of all time because that was a number one that really could not stand. It's adapted from the book American Prometheus, which is a non-fiction book, mm-hmm. and it kind of looks at Oppenheimer, kind of starts off with him as a kind of student having a very difficult time at Cambridge where he's kind of gone from America because he wants to be at the real frontier of physics, which is happening in Europe at the time. And then uh, later on, when World War II breaks out, he um, kind of gathers all of the great and good of uh, American physics and they go out to New Mexico and they build the atom bomb, which is where you'd think it would end. But no, but then McCarthyism happens. So, yes. <laughs> yeah, it, does. it sort of goes in another direction with the, I guess, the subplot, which is Robert Downey Jr.'s character. And it, it, it seems to do quite a lot of things. It spins a couple of plates, at least, doesn't it? It doesn't just tell the story of Oppenheimer's scientific work, but it tells the story of his kind of dismantling almost or attempted dismantling by the American state that he served as well it's doing quite a lot do you feel the same about it you came in to talk about this in the summer I believe actually do you feel the same about it it sounds like you love it more now than you did then if that's possible actually I do because I think it's something that kind of the more you think about it the stronger it becomes like the whole journey that Oppenheimer get has where he's kind of so conflicted and trying he tries to kind of view himself as just a cog in like a wider machine so he can't really be held responsible Mm. for it and then that's sort of contrasted with what he goes through with Robert Downey Jr where essentially he's kind of made one rude joke and uh, (laughs) one petty man has decided to kind of reshape history. Leila thank you so much for talking us through Oppenheimer there my thanks also of course to Laura Snapes on music and Andrew Mayle on the best of this year's books. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan Coombs and Steph Chungu and Steph also edits the show. We will be back at the same time next week but until then from me Robert Bounds thanks for tuning Tuning in.